Welcome back. You're listening to Season 3 of Seeking Refuge, a podcast sharing the human stories of refugees. This week, to kick off our season, we are examining the situation in Syria. According to the UNHCR, in 2019, 6.7 million people from Syria were refugees, and another 6.5 million were internally displaced, for a total of about 13.2 million people, making Syria the largest source of displacement in the world. The situation in Syria is incredibly complicated, but essentially, there has been a civil war in Syria since 2011 between soldiers who support President Bashar al-Assad, rebels who want Assad out of power, and the group known as the Islamic State. Other countries, including the U.S., have gotten involved in Syria and provided backing to groups that they support. There are many powers at play, but according to the BBC, Russia and Iran support Assad, the U.S., Turkey, and Saudi Arabia have backed rebel groups, and other countries have provided support to what they consider to be moderate rebels. The IRC states that 500,000 have lost their lives since fighting began in 2011 after the government attacked peaceful protesters. Many of these have been civilian deaths. Chemical weapons have been used by the Syrian government multiple times during the war, despite international agreements that they would destroy them. These attacks have prompted several outside countries to begin airstrikes in retaliation for the use of chemical weapons. Those in Syria face malnutrition, violence, and obstacles in access to healthcare and education, as well as other vital services. The IRC has pointed out that healthcare aid workers have increasingly become targets of violence in the country. Syrian refugees who have fled the violence in Syria face problems trying to find safe refuge. Most are in neighboring countries like Turkey, Lebanon, Jordan, and Iraq. Many Syrians have attempted and still do attempt to cross the Mediterranean to Europe to find safe harbor, which has led to restrictions by most of Europe and thousands of refugees being stuck in camps in Greece. Thousands who were approved to be resettled in the U.S. have since been denied access due to cuts in annual refugee resettlement that began in 2017. Of the 6.7 million Syrian refugees, 320 are expected to enter the U.S. in 2020. We apologize for any technical errors in the audio as our guest this week zoomed in from Turkey to tell us about her experience with the Syrian crisis. Today we are speaking with Amani Kanjo of the Syrian Relief and Development Organization to hear about her work with healthcare in Syria and Syrian victims of gender-based violence. Your host for this week is Isha Hegde. Today on the Seeking Refuge podcast, I'm joined by Amani Kanjo, a member of the Syria Relief Development. Ms. Kanjo, would you mind describing your organization for me? Hello, everyone. Uh, Syria Relief and Development was founded in November 2011 in response to the escalating humanitarian crisis that came about as a result of conflict in Syria. For over Eight years, SRD, which is a nonprofit organization, has provided humanitarian aid to Syrians affected by violence, hunger, poverty, injury, and displacement. The violent situation in Syria has created a dire need for food, security, shelter, protection, healthcare, and more. So, SRD works to address these needs through comprehensive programs within Syria and neighbor regions. Thank you, Amani. So how large is your organization right now? Um, we consider like uh, Syrian Fund Development is a medium-large, uh, let's say, local Syrian NGO, uh, but we have a good reach to uh, uh, refugees inside Syria. 
for for now we could reach like 11 million beneficiaries out of them uh, for a million three hundred eighty five thousand beneficiaries through and during uh, 2019. The organization she works for, the Syria Relief Development, is a nonprofit organization that was started in 2011 by Syrian Americans Dr. Jihad Kador and his daughter Jomana Kador. What personally drew me into the organization was their humble beginnings, as well as, like Amani described, the organization's reach and advocacy programs. These programs range from a focus on providing shelter to refugees all the way to education. But for today's episode, I wanted to speak to Amani about one of the larger focuses of her organization, providing healthcare for people in need through different um, programs that is provided health programs nutrition protection shelter and non-food items and um, services uh, could reach um, a good a good number of, of the, the people who are affected by the crisis one aspect of my talk with Amani that really stood out was her constant stress on the Syria relief development, providing their constituents with community-level health care. It was really eye-opening to fully comprehend and understand that for many people subjugated to a large humanitarian crisis such as this one, health care might be one of the last things that they think about. By organizations such as the Syria Relief Development inserting themselves directly within displaced communities, they're able to meet one-on-one with people who are quite at the foreground of these major health concerns. After learning this approach that the organization had, I was really curious about Amani's specific role within the Syria Relief Development. So, can you describe your role in the organization? Mainly, uh, I'm the Gender-Based Violence Protection Program Manager, and working in integrating the gender-based violence and maintain gender equality in health programs. And uh, this is only if you can talk about it, but how bad is the gender-based violence in Syria right now? Is it very, um, is it a very large problem or is it a new problem that people are seeing right now based on the refugee crisis? Actually, um, the gender issues uh, is um, uh, present like before the crisis, of course, and everywhere at different times, like domestic violence, early marriage, rape, and sexual harassment is all over uh, Syria. But uh, of course, during the crisis, the number of incidents might might increase and doubled. So we are working. Tr- trying to address some of these issues and to respond to the to them and prevent as much as we can. Asking Amani about her role in the Syria Relief Development as a gender-based violence coordinator left me at a really big crossroads of what exactly I considered the role of healthcare workers or any advocacy workers to be. I'd previously had this very clear-cut image of what I thought healthcare providers to be, but I soon learned that by helping these people in their hometowns, these healthcare workers also become mediators between the crises and the people they were healing. As Amani described, gender-based violence ranging from early marriage to domestic abuse were already fairly large issues in Syrian society, but have unfortunately been heightened due to the current humanitarian crisis that's going on. 
It really didn't occur to me what a strain these ongoing and heightened problems of gender-based violence could mean for healthcare and advocacy workers within Syria and across the world. The sheer diversity and array of problems that advocacy workers deal with are monumental. So this led me to ask Amani about any personal stories she could share about refugees and any of the advocacy workers that SRD had helped. I might mention like some uh, story, a kind of integration of child protection and health in health programs and how we are linking these programs together. For example, in uh, one town in northwest Syria, Hussein lives with his family and two daughters, Rahaf, who, who is 12 with cerebral uh, policy, and Rana, who is nine with cerebral atrophy. Years of displacement and powerlessness to provide for his daughters, particularly the medicines they need, left him really frustrated and in a state of constant anger. He met Ahmed, who is a caseworker at Syria Relief and Development, involved with the Ahlan Simpson or uh, Welcome Simpson program which is a child protection and uh, early childhood development program we're working on, uh, introduced Hussein to a new initiative in Syria that combines session of education, parenting skills, and development to create brighter futures for families. Amani's story of Hussein, his two daughters Raha and Rana, and their caseworker Ahmed shows the importance of information. I felt as if by now the conversation that I was having with Amani had spawned way past just healthcare of individuals within a humanitarian crisis, but also into a conversation about how to inform and educate those who are trapped in these situations. I think coming to this conclusion at the end of the day, I saw that education on care can be just as important as the healthcare alone. As for an update on Hussein, he began attending the development and play a session and became like more and more interested in how he could reshape the future of his daughters. After these sessions, I turned into someone else. I raised two of my daughters, hugged them, promised them I, I wouldn't let their chance for happiness slip away. This is a word from Hussein we received through uh, a good and consolidated referral to uh, a primary health care. He, be he began to access medicines for Rahaf and Rana and Hussein now feels that his experience has allowed him to gain a semblance of hope for his daughters. Hussein's story really reminded me of the fact that people and places are often depicted as very one-dimensional. In the media, large humanitarian crises such as the one occurring in Syria often feel like a distant cause and a matter to hold an opinion over rather than an issue affecting hundreds of thousands of people each day. Learning about Hussein's change in lifestyle showed me that advocacy in situations like these aren't one-dimensional. It isn't just curing a patient, it's also about providing that patient and their families with the tools to continue their progress. In order to keep up with the flow of our conversation, I shift our topic back into the realm of healthcare. So uh, just asking the question that you have, we know that negative health outcomes don't happen in a vacuum. 
Can you tell us more about the integration approach taken in Northwest Syria to link health and protection? Yeah, sure. Um, one of uh, gender-based violence uh, subcluster incident reports showed that 47 of rape cases required immediate clinical management of rape, and 53 of these cases were disclosed directly to medical staff and referred to for gender-based violence specialized services, whereas the 47% of cases were disclosed to gender-based violence service providers and referred for urgent medical services as needed, which highlights the importance of collaboration work between GBV and health actors. So uh, for us, like health services are often the first and the only point of contact for gender-based violence survivors seeking assistance. And in order to facilitate the care for survivors, they need to have safe access to health facilities and safe transit to from facilities and without any stigmatizing and with a confidential entry points for the services. So it's also very critical that health providers working in emergencies are equipped to offer non-discriminatory and quality health service for, for survivors. I wanted to highlight like how much case management and uh, psychological uh, support with adequate uh, health intervention is life-saving in some critical rape cases, for example, sexual harassment, um, the confidentiality, privacy, and healthcare really saves a lot of uh, survivors from uh, honor killing or uh, life uh, of uh, the mother and child itself. So increasing the understanding of the rape symptoms, uh, especially in uh, instances where family approach the health facilities to request virginity testing, for example, still in Syria present um, of their female mm, uh, family members and understanding virginity is a key symptom of sexual violence and it's insult like an act of sexual violence committed against women and, and uh, girls in the context of northwest Syria. So uh, we always work in, in uh, different um, and minimum protection requirements uh, with the health care providers so we always train them how to ask and respond appropriately and in a non-judgmental way and attitude uh, whenever they uh, receive um, a sexual assault survivor and uh, always work on a confidential uh, referral system with a good uh, services and quality services of mental health and uh, uh, psychosocial support for them. Of course, every crisis is different, but the immense focus on providing healthcare for women specifically by SRD was definitely a shift in my thought process and who exactly these situations were harming the most. Um, how many female healthcare workers or 
doctors or caseworkers are there in your organization? Um, especially since, you know, you're dealing with a lot of gender-based violence or focusing on gender-based violence, um, you know, as an organization or that's your role. Would you say that there are more female healthcare workers working with the Syria Relief Development? Actually, we cannot say that we have, like, female or the male. Uh, but still, it's a good percentage and rate of uh, female healthcare workers all are working with us. And not only healthcare workers, but also in other sectors like protection and either shelter and other support operational departments so besides um just the you know immense gender-based violence that women face in syria or you know specifically female refugees as we were speaking on how do you think the refugee experience as a female or life as just um you know a female living in these very uh trying times in syria is different from their male counterparts Unfortunately, like uh, many female health workers reported like uh, negative and, and uh, possibly discriminatory experiences in workplace and that's what we uh, more focus on in order to develop and uh, to uh, improve uh, for the protection of health workers and um, any kind of uh, workers as well. So one of their main concerns related to to those health workers and non-health workers as well is the maternity protection at work. For example, as for pregnant and nursing workers, uh, they consider that they have unfair maternity leave and no enough breaks for breastfeeding, pressure to return back to work as there is no replacement staff during the emergency. Besides negative comments and complaints about the inconvenience of pregnancy time by line managers and that also influences the recruitment and job offers at earlier stage. And secondly, like stereotype and traditional gender roles in house chores and child rearing uh, with the same overload of work comparing to male workers in workplaces. And most probably many uh, female workers and female health and non-health workers have, have difficulties in night shifts work. Additionally, female workers are not treated and considered equally valued like as male uh, workers. And uh, you really... You rarely find females in managerial positions in hospitals or primary health care centers. All above mentioned would lead to badly treated from line managers and or forced to leave the job or influence their decision to stop breastfeeding. Either she is like working in obstetric and gynecology clinic and influence their opportunities, status and job job security and eventually impact health and welfare. So we always suggest some solutions, for example, to uh, granting for the donors and governments and the authority there for granting um, a pregnant and a 
uh, nursing workers some equality and flexibility at working hours and budgeting for replacement staff and creating dis discrimination and, and harassment to free atmosphere at workplace. So this is in that way in some advocacy and numbers and statistics, we always do uh, what we can do as um, activists, let's say, and as um, a protection and gender worker. Another important realization that I had while speaking with Amani focused on the risk that these healthcare workers were putting themselves in. Again, I think as people viewing this crisis from a distance, it's easy to forget that there is this huge cycle of unfortunate circumstances that start with people being in these oppressed positions and transition onto advocates who help them. So Amani, thank you so much for speaking with me today. Um, talking about, you know, the healthcare crisis in Syria right now, and especially the gender-based violence that's going on, uh, coupled with the, you know, refugee crisis and just humanitarian crisis in Syria today. What do you hope that individuals listening to this podcast, primarily from, you know, my university in America, will learn? Thanks a lot, uh, first of all, for having listening uh, to me to learn more about the situation there but I would really uh, ask them to know more information about humanitarian situation in, in Syria right now and also to know the main reason of the cause of this crisis and the situation really differs between North Syria and South Syria so please have uh, a time and chance to uh, read more about the situation and uh, help us in advocacy uh, as much as we can. When I first started speaking with Amani, I walked in only wanting to focus on healthcare. But leaving our conversation, I realized that a humanitarian crisis can't have just one focus. It's much more cyclical than I had ever envisioned. There's so many more factors that affect the position of refugees besides just the political climate that they're placed in. In my conversation with Amani, I saw that it's not only the refugees that are placed in risk, but also those who work with them and advocate for them. I've definitely realized, and I hope you do as well, that the separation from these issues, our separation from these issues, doesn't mean that they aren't occurring on a magnitude and scale that we have no idea about. I urge us all to realize that these issues are cyclical and that viewing them from a one-dimensional perspective isn't going to help them at all. That was Amani Kanjo talking with Isha about her work with healthcare in Syria. If you'd like to donate to SRD, there is a link in our show notes. If you like this episode, be sure to subscribe, rate, and review us in the comments below. If you'd like to get in touch with us, email us at seekingrefugepodcast at gmail.com. Follow us at Refuge Podcast on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook for all the updates on our show. As always, a huge thank you to Maxie International House for making our show possible. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you in the next one.